AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, John, I hear you've got a story for us today about some IoT devices that are behaving badly. Well, I mean, I don't know. Well, they are behaving badly, <laughs> but it's because they were designed poorly, I guess. Exactly. Um, and it, uh, more to the point, these are actually smart building uh, access systems, mostly for like door control type things yep. in you know corporate environment and whatnot. Um, so it might have like a badge reader or uh, some kind of push button thing to get it, you know, access into a, a room or something in a, a corporate building. So uh, these devices are actually um, by Nortec Security and Control. Um, they're linear eMERGE E3 devices, which probably doesn't mean anything to most people. But if you have one of these things, you would probably, uh, you know, recognize it. There are several vulnerabilities that a security researcher group, um, Applied Security, Applied Risk, uh, they discovered these vulnerabilities back in May, notified the company. Uh, company did not take any action. Uh, I still am not sure if to date whether they have or not uh, in terms of releasing patches. Um, but the vulnerabilities are pretty high. Um, many of them are level 10 of 10, mm -hmm. which means uh, without any authentication, you can pretty much you know, do some sort of remote code execution, get access to it. Uh, so there, the good news is that from an internet perspective, there are not that many of these exposed to the internet, maybe around 2,400 or so based on what they see, which is uh, a smallish footprint compared to a lot of other things that we see like the security camera DVRs and whatnot that are uh, widely uh, exposed on the internet. Uh, but there are, uh, appears that uh, there are people actively looking for these, you know, bad actors are actively looking for these devices, recruiting them into a botnet. It's very easy because it's basically got a little embedded Linux, like a lot of IoT devices. Uh, the remote code execution lets you very easily get into it, drop an implant on there, and, you know, use it as part of your botnet for whatever, um, you know, whatever you, you're interested right. in, in doing with your botnet. Right. So I guess the thing that I thought was interesting about this is that, um, these devices, unlike security camera DVRs, which a lot of those are in home environments and things like these, this particular device is probably um, deployed more often in corporate or other types of you know, commercial type footprints. And um, we do know that, not necessarily with this specific device, but in other cases, we've seen bad actors, especially nation state actors, um, use these types of devices as kind of a way to get a foothold into a company. Uh, so if they can compromise that device, they might be able to move laterally or whatnot further into the company's network because uh, sometimes they're in kind of a bastion environment where they're, you know, they've got one end on the internet and one end uh, on the inside corporate network. Right. It's these devices that get installed that unfortunately usually get forgotten once they're installed because they're, they do one function, they're set up for that one function, and they're very easy to f just f sort of forget. And so, you know, in, in this particular case, we see that sometimes these devices, unfortunately, get exposed to the internet, um, but even when they're not exposed to the internet, they still pose a potential risk sitting inside of your, you know, your corporate buildings. You said there's about, what, 2,400, you said? That something like something yeah, around, around that. that. So, I mean, obviously, I guess when you throw a number like that out, the one thing that you have to realize is th that's 2,400 that are 
visible from the internet. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you could have one of these devices within your network, you just don't have it exposed, right? right? right. So which means that you still have the vulnerability if somebody walks into, into one of your buildings, right, as a guest or whatever it may be, they may be able to plug in and take, you know, take over one of these devices or use this as a device to get further onto the network or maybe even just get onto the network. Mm -hmm. Because if you've got controls in place enough where a visitor just can't plug in, if they find a device that has a vulnerability, they could use that. So the 2400 is just the exposed. There probably is a ton more of these things that are actually out there. And then I think earlier you had mentioned about the name of the company that makes these things and it not being familiar. I think a lot of people, the, the problem is is that I think a lot of people who are per perhaps responsible for security in, in like big buildings probably wouldn't recognize that name either, right? Because they weren't involved in the purchasing right, it, of those yeah. equ that, that equipment that goes into these, into these buildings. So even looking at this, you might read that story over and go, oh yeah, I don't recognize that name. That doesn't necessarily mean you don't have these devices in your, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, what, did you have something on that, Jim? Yeah, well, yeah, and the the uh, Sonic Wall article says that as of February first, there still is no patch for this, and you know the the fact that these were reported in May that there were four at least four vulnerabilities that had a CVSS score of nine point eight or greater. Um, that's yeah. That's a little bit concerning. Uh, I would hope that most vendors would react more quickly than that and get the, the patches out because, you know, as Manny was saying, that 2400 on the Internet, that's bad enough. I mean, these should not be exposed to the Internet. But, um, you know, the thousands more, maybe tens of thousands more, that, as Manny was saying, you know, do the folks internally actually know that they've got these? And, you know, there is no patch available, but even when there is a patch available, will they know how to patch them? Right. Yeah. And whether they've been compromised or whatnot. Um, one of your, what you were saying earlier, I know in a lot of investigations I've worked um, partnering with some of our customers and whatnot, a lot of the building automation stuff, especially access control, lighting in the buildings, a lot of them have like lighting systems that they're managed by like an outside vendor. Um, and they'll use maybe a wireless connection, cellular wireless to get into it and like control the settings to adjust the lighting and whatnot, um, you know, on a regular basis or even uh, remote administration of the, uh, uh, the building access. So. That's um, something that you also need to consider or be concerned about as, you know, um, a corporate security person, if you're in the security department, these devices a lot of times are probably not going to be any kind of asset inventory um, that you might have uh, because they were deployed by maybe a third party vendor who was contracted to put them into the building right. for some reason. Yep. So, um, you know, that's an important yeah. consideration. If Go they're ahead. being controlled from outside, you know, that should at least have some sort of a VPN or something so that only the folks who should be managing it can access it. Yep. Putting these on the internet is not the way to do it. Right, 100%. Yep. 
And I guess the one last thought I had while you were talking was if I was a really motivated attacker and I wanted to stay under the wire, if I was able to get into the building at one point, like maybe I'm an insider threat actor yep. um, in the building um, and I find that you've got this kind of access control system that's unpatched, I might be able to get into it, add my own access cards to it, um, and then later, after wow. I've been terminated or gone, I can get back in the building as I want because I've, you know, right. backdoored the access control system to yep. maybe get into the front door of the building or whatnot. So something to be concerned about, obviously. Yep. Um, you know, fortunately, I think in most respects with this particular case, the people who are compromising them don't really care that they're building an access control system. They just think it's a Linux box that I can use to DDoS, whatever, yep. do like, you know, uh, mischievous, malicious activities. They're not necessarily targeting the end person. They're just using the device for um, some compute power that right. they can, you know, yeah. use as part of their botnet. But something right. like or mine, mine cryptocurrency or something. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is just one of many types of devices like this. So this is just yet another example of. And we talk about this type of stuff on the show regularly. This is just another case to be mindful of. Another. Um, you know, type of typical scenario that we've seen before. So, right. yeah. Hey, Jim. So, um, you know, a lot of times we don't think of biological viruses and whatnot as impacting uh, cybersecurity, but in some cases there are some, you know, corollaries or impacts there. And I think you were looking into a story about that with respect to coronavirus recently. Yeah, uh, you know, the this Wuhan coronavirus has been making a lot of you know, news lately. You know, the U.S. airlines aren't flying to China anymore for the next few months because of it. And uh, it just brought up another side of uh, cybersecurity that we don't actually touch on too much on the show, so I thought this was a a nice opportunity to do that. My my friend Johannes Ulrich over at the Internet Storm Center um, put up this story on the Handler's Diary there. But um, you know, we we have talked about it on the show, and we we see fairly frequently with natural disasters and that kind of thing. You'll see the bad guys swooping in and setting up, you know, new domains to try to take donations or or, or use it to spread their malware. Um, and that we're actually seeing some of that happen with this coronavirus thing. But the other thing that it, it brought to my mind was, you know, business continuity, disaster recovery kinds of things um, that are, are probably topics we need to, to mention here from time to time. So that's the biggest reason why I wanted to, to throw this out there, um, a couple of the things that Johannes was highlighting, um, you know, in business continuity and disaster recovery, we usually spend a lot of time thinking about how do we rebuild our servers in, you know, some disaster recovery site. But the, this brings up the thought of what about our people? You know, if if all our key employees are are ill, you know, I, you know the the coronavirus in the U.S. frankly hasn't been a big deal. There've been 
you know, where there have been a do- half dozen, a dozen cases in the U.S. so far and, and no deaths. In the U.S., actually, flu is a, is a bigger thing. You know, the CDC says that there have been 16 million Americans have gotten the flu this year and eight or 10,000 have died from it. Yeah. Um, so, that you know, that's something to worry about. How are we set up in our enterprises to allow folks to work from home mm-hmm. so that they're, you know, that they're not spreading the flu or or the coronavirus or whatever around the workplace? Um, yeah, the other one of the other points that Johannes mentioned that I hadn't really thought about is, you know, biometric identification kinds of stuff. You know, fingerprint scanners, facial recognition. Um, if you're wearing gloves or you got a, a mask on, yeah, those aren't going to work. Right. Um, some hand sanitizers or you know the stuff that you use to clean the you know the handprint or the fingerprint scanners. Yeah, is that going to affect the ability to read the? You know the fingerprint or the handprint. Um, yeah, just just the kinds of things that I don't have any particular answers for them, but they're things that we need to include in our you know in our business continuity and disaster recovery plans. We need to be thinking about not just what happens if a fire or an earthquake takes out a data center, but what happens if a pandemic you know, puts half of our workforce in the hospital. How do we keep our, you know, our enterprise running in that case? And so, uh, uh, you know, Johannes has links to a couple of things in there, but I, it was just something that we don't talk about on the show very often, and I thought this was just an opportunity to, to give that some thought. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I think you made some, you know, valid points in terms of like, you know, looking at this and deciding, you know, what are the best options for this? And obviously, I think, you know, one of them is obviously, you know, when something like this, especially, you know, talking uh, about the coronavirus is, is to sort of the, the whole notion of quarantine people, right? So keeping them at home, but allowing them to continue to work because a lot of these folks, exactly. you know, it's not, it's not like they're, they, they can't work. It's just that you, right. you know, you don't want them to be working, you know, just yeah, in case they're spreading, right. whatever, right. Exactly. So you want to try to, you want to try to avoid the situation where you have somebody sick that comes in and then all of a sudden the rest of your workforce is sick because they're working, you know, today, probably more and more in open environments, right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to closed offices where somebody could just lock themselves away. Um, so I think yeah, that's one sick person in a call center. Right. Yeah. And you're, yeah, <laughs> you're, right. you're, yeah, you're done. Um, so so I think that that's, you know, important to have, you know, to have that ability to do, you know, sort of work from home. And, you know, I realize that a lot of companies do have those types of policies. I mean, I haven't looked into like sort of what the general notion is across uh, across companies within the U.S. about, you know, their policies on on, uh, you know, uh, working from home. Uh, but I have to imagine that a lot of them do have that ability to do that, right? And so, you know, are you able to, if you are a company that is kind of borderline where you don't allow it that much, can you pivot quickly when something like this happens, right? Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and get people to like, hey, I know you guys don't have VPN access, but here, let's, you know, let's get you a VPN access and you can start working from home. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's, uh, all those are really valid points. And I actually wouldn't um, uh, devalue or undervalue uh, having a good emergency communication plan, which is not really a cybersecurity thing, but when you have when you are separated from your workforce or your workforce is very large and diverse, um, and I know you know our company does this and probably a lot of other companies do as well. Um, if there is some like large disaster or something uh, that you have a way for your workers to. Uh, report in their status that they're okay. Like yeah. maybe there's a huge hurricane or some natural disaster that comes up the Eastern seaboard and you wanna make sure your workforce is okay. Having a way for them to check in that, yeah, we're okay, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, and for the management team to know, okay, we haven't heard from Bob, you know, what's going on? Let's, you know, try to find out. Uh, just helps you kind of like get a better, really quick, understanding of you know the human impact that certain events might be having you know and same yep. thing with the pandemic and whatnot so having those kinds of things established i think is a good thing to have um even though you probably don't use them that often uh which is a good thing you don't want you know right. large-scale disasters occurring on a regular basis but it's good to test it too you know yeah. and i think we do a test exactly. at least once or two twice a year um yeah. to check um you know they we have the yes okay uh, hotline where we all have to check in, you right. know, at least once a year or something on a regular basis to test the system and make sure it's working properly. So, yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, this is, uh, I mean, it, like you said, Jim, it's not something we think about a lot, um, but there are a lot of uh, bullet points in this article that, um, you know, I think are valuable for companies to think about uh, and how, you know, uh, a pandemic or other natural disaster like that would you know, may impact them and to be prepared for that kind of situation. Right, and, and outside of the, the ones that, you know, as Jim said earlier, outside of the normal ones that you would think about being in the cybersecurity field, you know, the ones that we talk about constantly from week to week, which is, you know, don't be fooled by, you know, by the phishing campaigns that will come out talking about, you know, here's how to, here's how to um, donate to, you know, right, coronavirus right. Uh, fund or something like that. You know, those we've talked about very extensively on this show, but I think the other side, which Jim, you know, uh, you know, talked about earlier, which is that whole other side, which is you know the, the your actual people and you know getting them to actually into the offices and working and continuing, you know, that whole continuation of you know being your company actually working, you know, right. and you know, so right. I think you've that's got the, you've got the events where you might have a bad event. And the things that we talk about a lot are the bad actors trying to capitalize on that right. by having phishing or uh, other types of lures that they use to trick people into getting malware based on this large scale event that occurred. But uh, what we're talking about here is the actual impacts right. of a large scale event to you yeah, and your exactly. workforce, yeah. not the goofy bad actors trying to capitalize right. on it, but the... Um, which you know. you'll have to protect against. You'll have to yeah, worry about, about both, both right? right? In these th in these situations, always, it's but, always yeah. going to happen. But yeah. Um, right, uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, very very good um, uh, thing to consider and think about. So. Yep. Some of these devices, as we've seen over time, uh, tend to run end of life, and when they run end of life, realistically, what you should be doing is replacing the device, not keeping it on the network. So oh, Manny, I understand you've got some info on TrickBot to share with us? 
I do. So, uh, so TrickBot, I think anybody that watches the show probably realizes TrickBot itself isn't new. Um, it's been around since at least 2016. It's, uh, you know, first iterations were um, a banking Trojan. Mm -hmm. um, and it came uh, actually right after the dire uh, banking Trojan. I think it might have actually taken its place. Um, but it is quickly since 2016 has become quite a uh, widely used uh, Trojan and uh, sort of repurposed over the years. So over the years, it's been obviously gaining more functionality and features, um, which we typically see with these types of, you know, uh, uh, malware and Trojans. Um, and so this story talks a little bit about sort of the latest iteration of its, of its changes. Um, so previous to this, we had actually seen, so what this is, has used uh, pre, uh, recently is UAC, or the user, uh, uh, user account access, or user access control. Access control. User uh, account control, I think. User, user account control. control, yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, sure, correct, yeah. <clears throat> user account control. So, uh, and user account control, uh, as most po folks probably know, is used within Windows to basically, as a, as a security device or, or, or security uh, function, to alert the user that, hey, the, something is trying to make changes to the system, do you want to allow these changes to happen? Right. Right? It's like and when so, you go to install a piece of software, you get this thing yep. pops up and it makes a sound. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, this program wants elevated privileges to do whatever, whatever. Exactly. Right. And so we, we've probably talked about it a million times in terms of like that box popping up all times and people, you know, basically almost mindlessly clicking the, yeah, go ahead, because I'm in a rush, <laughs> let it go do its things. Uh, and so clearly that they're still sort of relying on people to, to do that, but in this particular story, they're getting around that. And so what we had seen previous to this was um, they had used what's called uh, FODHelper.exe, FOD uh, which, is, which is short for Feature on Demand. Um, and they were using that uh, as the sort of the crux of the, the trick bot. So now, Fast forward to now, they're using sort of that same technique, except they've replaced FOD, uh, FOD Helper with WS Reset, which mm. WS Reset is a basically a troubleshooting tool that is used in Windows. Uh, legitimate to, Windows tool. Legitimate Windows tool, tool that is used for starting in Windows 8 when the whole Windows Store came out. Mm -hmm. It's a troubleshooting tool that allows you to uh, reset the Windows Store cache. Okay. Uh, so it's basically troubleshooting where if you have some problems with your Windows Store, you can go in and run this tool, it clears out the cache, and it's supposed to help with, you know, sort of getting things started right, up again. Like, okay. It's evolved yet again a little bit. They, they keep adding new tricks to its bag of tricks on how to uh, get access and maintain persistence on devices that it infects. So what we've seen is basically this uh, the TrickBot now is, is is in essence using this uh, uh, this tool, and so what what ends up happening is obviously TrickBot is being delivered via the normal routes that we see. So it's right. being delivered as a as a piece of email, you know, right. email phishing, right? So it gets delivered. You get somebody to click on it. In essence, what it does, it's uh, and one thing that also is is um, important to note is that the WS reset within Windows has the auto elevate property set to true. 
<clears throat> which means that that when you run that, it automatically is being run as, with admin creds, right. right? So, so that basically tells it. It doesn't pop up the UAC box. That's the key. Is it's a it's a way of bypassing UAC. Exactly. So that's that's the key. Certain with this. Win legitimate Windows programs, they know that well. This you know, it's signed as a Windows program, so it's legit. It doesn't need to ask. Exactly. That. And right. and the old uh, the old FOD helper was also. It had this exact same properties in it. And the problem is, is that across Windows, if you look across Windows, the Windows binaries, there are tons, hundreds, probably even thousands of binaries within Windows that use this auto elevate property set to true. Hmm. Because a lot of the stuff runs in the background. It doesn't need to right. come doesn't and ask. Want the, it like, right. Yeah. Doesn't want to come and you ask every anywhere. single time. They'd be prompting you right. all the time. <laughs> exactly. So they're using this to their advantage to act and actually, uh, to, to run these programs, so they, this the TrickBot uses the shell execute uh, exw API to run the TrickBot you know binary, um, which then uses which once you once you run this, it uses reg.exe, which is the registry editor, mm -hmm. to modify a couple registry keys to add in things like the the path um, and the location. Of the of the files that they will be running uh, uh, as part of TrickBot, and so they they use the shell execute API, which launches the um, which launches the um, uh, uh, the TrickBot exactly the, the the binary itself, which has already been written to sort of run some of the commands that they use. So now you're talking about all of the different things that TrickBot is able to do on a system today. So things like stealing credentials. Uh, you know, stealing keys, uh, passwords uh, out of your browser, passwords out of your browser, all that other stuff that it basically runs once it's able to do this stuff. So, beyond sort of the the, the technical details, and there's actually a link in the story that takes you to a to a page that has a you know pretty good uh, technical write up in terms of what it's actually doing, um, how it actually uses the the uh, the shell execute uh, to run the uh, the Windows shell. Um, that allows the TrickBot to do what it uh, does on a system. But I think r realistically here, what the, the main uh, purpose or the main uh, point of this entire story here is, is the fact that it is using, we, we are seeing TrickBot using UAC much more often now to avoid popping the message up. So when this thing launches now, the user is absolutely right. oblivious. Right that anything has actually happened. Whereas before, that was being used by Windows as sort of a, an, an ability to say, hey. guard to say, right. hey, something's up. Are you sure you want this to happen? But now you're not gonna see that. You're not gonna see that. With using this trick that yeah. they found. The, the, the key is, a lot of malware is gonna look for these, these binaries that, that already legitimately do the UAC bypass that have the auto-elevate set to true. And the question is, how tightly are those locked down, or can you get them, like in this case, to execute an arbitrary binary by modifying these registry keys? And you know that's what that's what TrickBot did here is that it got the um, WS reset to execute its code with privileges, and now it's able to do you know whatever it wants on the system. And there are a number of these out there and the malware offers are always looking at these binaries that have that auto elevate set to true and see if they can get them to 
execute arbitrary other arbitrary binaries on the system. Yep. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I I failed to mention earlier. So Trickbot, as I as I mentioned, it, it obviously has a lot of different features. This is just one sort of branch of the features. So the first thing that TrickBot does when it runs on your system, it figures out what OS you're running. Are you running Windows 7 or Windows 10? So if you're running Windows 7, it actually takes a different branch. This branch here is for Windows 10. Right. So, right. You, know, it's, you know, so there's a whole different branch that it does, and it, it obviously works on Windows 7 as well, but it uses a whole completely different technique to compromise the, the, the end device. And I guess the other thing about this is, just because TrickBot's using this as a UAC bypass technique, uh, now that it's kind of like known, and actually, you know, I think a lot of other malware authors look at what other malware authors are doing. They're gonna, there's gonna be other things besides TrickBot that are probably gonna leverage this as a means to get elevated privileges so that they can do similar things with their malware. Yep. Uh, so uh, I guess I don't really know how Microsoft approaches patching these types of things, but they'll probably have to uh, go relook at WS Reset and figure out, you know, is there some way we can prevent this from uh, being used as a bypass technique in the future? Maybe hard coding the, or, or providing a whitelist of these are the executables that it can run. Yep, right. To, to do the resetting and, you know. Yeah, because as I said, the issue is that by changing these registry keys, you can get it to execute an arbitrary executable with elevated privileges. So they'll have to figure out some way of locking that down. And I'm, I'm sure they will. They, right. And until that time, you know, we all need to be vigilant about not running strange pieces of malware or executables, right. or even like hopefully not find somebody finding a drive-by exploit on a browser that runs an executable that uses this technique and you just passively just visiting a website, get a infection machine. Right. Um, that would be kind of a multi-layered attack, but um, you know things like that have happened in the past. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know unfortunately the problem is, and it, this is a hard problem I think for Microsoft to to fix because, as we've already seen, they've already gone through iterations because, as soon as W WS reset gets fixed, they'll find the next one right. that has the exact same capability. And they'll just exploit that one. That and and I think they've got hundreds, if not thousands, of these binaries within Windows that they can go after. So mm. it's it's probably a very difficult one to sort of keep in front of. But we'll see how this they handle this one. Be wary of any kind of strange emails, um, as well as um, if you have, you know, a lot of different providers out there, especially in corporate environments. All right, Manny, I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. Um, no real big movers and shakers, as we can see. These two guys just swap positions, 80 and 81. This is the scanning with respect to like the actual probing, not how many people are doing it, but just scan probes in general on different ports. Um, a lot of things we see all the time. Uh, Telnet, still number one position by you know pretty sizable margin here. Yep. Um, uh, 445 TCP is the Microsoft uh, uh, SMB protocol for file sharing. We're actually going to take a closer look at that one just to see how things have trended over the time here, uh, but nothing surprising here. I guess I'll note uh, the GE Ethereum wallet is still up pretty high. It's just a small number of actors here, so um, but they're still looking. Remote desktop protocol we saw all the time. 
80 and 81 or web-based ones. 81, I believe there's a like a security camera system that listens on this that's being targeted because uh, it's a vulnerability there. Uh, but nothing that we haven't really talked about before on the show. Uh, so let's take a look at 445 TCP. Uh, this is a very long-term chart. So this is uh, five years, uh, actually. Five years. And I say, stop your crying, because if you look back here in the prior to 2017, May of 2017, uh, you'll see that it was a kind of, you know, a regular noise floor of activity where it wasn't really, um, and this is the, how many devices are scanning? And this is the amount of scanning. Right. So the amount of scanning is a little bit more um, uh, gritty. Yep. It's not as fluid as the number of scan sources, so I kind of showed them together over the same time span so you can kind of see how they go together. Because this is kind of interesting here um, that I don't really have a specific explanation for uh, other than we had increased amounts of scanning for you know maybe six to seven month period back in 2019. Um, and it, it's since gone back to a kind of a normal pace um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, than it had been. But I think the, you know, the, maybe notable thing here is this little red arrow I have here is when WannaCry emerged. And you can see that's when things really took off. Yep. This little dip here is not real. That is actually a data loss on our side, so don't pay attention to that, but I can't remove it from the chart, <laughs> so it's there. Uh, but you can see it kind of has stayed, and it's kind of tailed off a bit. Um, I wouldn't say this is all WannaCry. There's lots of other botnets, uh, just like we we're talking about other stories. Once one person a uh, piece of malware author finds uh, you know, a good vulnerability to exploit. Uh, lots of other malware uh, you know, actors out there jump on the bandwagon. Right. So CV 2017-0144, uh, which is the eternal blue exploit, has been used by a lot of other uh, pieces of malware as well. It's some to even greater effect. Um, I want to say wanna crack maybe or something. There's a couple of other ones out there that actually scooped up a lot of uh, victims as well. Uh, so let's move on to the most sources probing. Uh, again, nothing really, you know, we look at the change from the previous week. There's not a lot of change. Nothing really jumped up from um, below as taking over noticeably. But we'll take a closer look at um, number seven here, 8291 TCP and 8728. I actually kind of linked them together because they're both uh, for Microtik. Uh, those are both yeah. Microtik router uh, ports and there's some there's some uh, congruence of activity there that we're going to take a look at. And then uh, we'll take a closer look at 5555 TCP as well, which we've talked about on the show before. So we'll just jump right in here. So this is the 8291 TCP and 8728. The blue is 8728 and the red is 8291. And you can see that there's a stack chart. So, um, but you can see that there's periods where some ports were used more than others. This is a year, I believe. Uh, oh, wait. Uh, 01, 2020. Yeah, this is a year. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is a year. Yeah. Um, but you can see there are some periods where the port 8291 was used, but not the blue. But then it, uh, at certain points, there was definitely a lot of consistency in terms of this is the number of scan sips, by the way. Devices scanning these ports at the same time and then it tailed off here. This nice little yep. um, uh, decay is very botnet-like, uh, the way that decays like that, where they all receive the stop command and they start to stop, although there's a little spike that happened there. Could be a different botnet or something. And then it resurged again and has continued um, at a proud, you know, similar levels, 
that they're scanning here. And um, those two ports, uh, I think we might actually have, uh, I might actually have a picture of some, what that, some, some of that scanning looks like. I'll take a look here in a second. Uh, so there, this is just an article kind of talking about the MicroTik router OS-based botnet. It's been kind of propagating for over a year now where people have been looking for these devices mm -hmm. um, that haven't been patched. And uh, similar to a lot of those IoT type devices out there, they find them, they can deploy malware on them, and then you know recruit them into their botnet. Uh, maybe I didn't have a picture of this, uh, picture of that activity. Uh, but in any event, there's those two ports uh, that they're scanning on. The last port that I thought was interesting uh, is the port 5555 TCP that we talk about. We've talked about on the show before. Um, it's known for the Android Debug Bridge, yeah, which okay. is a kind of debug service that you could turn on on Android devices, and then you could connect to it, and then kind of while you're running a program, some Android app, you can debug it real time. So some people or some products, you know, there's a lot of Android-based IoT devices besides just phones out there. There's like set-top boxes yeah. and all kinds of other types of devices that run on the Android operating system. They've accidentally left that service running, uh, even when they ship it, you know, in yep. the box out to uh, customers. So some of those have been inadvertently exposed to the internet, and um, uh, there's also a mix of other activity because there's some Soho routers out there that are not Android-based, but they use um, uh, TR69, which is kind of like a management protocol. Um, uh, on that same port. So it's not really the same types of devices, but we're seeing probes on both of those. Okay. And I was going to show you, I actually have those, I do have pictures of what they both look like um, from, a, uh, from a packet perspective, if you see it in a honeypot or something like that. So this activity kind of started back around um, two years ago. This is a three-year chart. So about two years ago, we really started to uptick. And we've been talking about it ever since. Prior to that, there really wasn't much of anything. This little blip here is probably interesting to figure out who was this, where they had about 5,000 scan sources. Is it 1,000? Yeah. Uh, 5,000 mm -hmm. scan sources all of a sudden. Uh, but then it went away. And you know, several months went by before you know, it really became uh, a more yep. regular type of activity. And again, there, you can see some of these decay lines here where um, scanning has been you know, started and trails off. Uh, so this is the Android debug bridge probes that we see in our honeypot. And you'll see, we actually, I was gonna do a count on this. It looks like we're actually getting a lot more of this activity than I had noticed in the past. Um, but uh, this, these probes that start with CNXN, that's actually how, um, there's an article that uh, somebody did about how you exploit the Android debug bridge and connect to it. That's part of the connection uh, okay. mechanism to the Android debug bridge. And um, uh, that's part of the payload that, that you'll see. So these, all these probes from all these different sources here, um, which isn't that many, you know, I've got maybe five or six a day, something like that, uh, that hit our one honeypot uh, from various different uh, source IPs okay. uh, were coming in. So that's one type of activity uh, that we saw on that port 5555. And then the other type that we see, we've seen this actually a little bit more commonly, it seems like, um, but not as much of this lately, uh, is this TR69 probe, which is actually an HTTP request that you can make to a device that's listening, 
And some of them, you pass, like basically, he makes a connection and he passes in this big XML body here that says, yeah. this is what I want to set my new settings to. Like, here's the NTP servers and whatnot. Um, some poorly developed devices where the source code is not well uh, constructed, right. they take whatever these values are that they stick in here and they do things with them at like a Linux level, but they're not doing any kind of um, input sanitization on them. <clears throat> so you can see there's a back tick and another back tick, which basically means execute this. So if you have poorly written codes that's not looking for that, it may inadvertently execute whatever you pass in in the new NTP server one parameter, which is what they're hoping this device, my honeypot, you know, it's not gonna do that, but a real device that was vulnerable would and what it would do is it would go fetch yep. using wget this malware payload, uh, which was not there when I looked um, this morning, uh, and then they run it. So they use sh, which is shell, to run the thing, and then okay. then that's how they would infect it, so that the device becomes infected. Yep. Um, so just a couple of things, you know, these are the things in the top ten. So there is a lot of activity on them in general on the internet. So things to be wary of um, if you uh, have any devices that might be. Uh, of this nature or exposing these ports to the internet. And if they are, I would recommend you not expose them and or only expose them to sources that you know and trust um, using some sort of uh, filter and whatnot. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.